Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And first and foremost, we want to thank each and every one of you who's been sticking around for the last five years. We couldn't do it without you because, well, without you, there'd be no reason to do it at all. But uh, joining us, as always, live from Texas, Mr. Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how you doing tonight, sir? Good. I'm excited about tonight's show. I think we got a real whopper for our listeners tonight, for sure. Not only do we have a whopper, but we're kind of going back to the old school format, how the show originated, how it started. And tonight, we are going to go back to basics and focus, pretty much, on living history. And as Jeff and I were talking before the show, the nice thing about having living historians on, particularly living historians who specialize in a particular impression and or persona, is they can bring the history on that particular topic and or persona. And so tonight we have Mr. Robert Tidwell joining us, and he is a man of multiple impressions and a man of multiple knowledge. And first and foremost, Mr. Tidwell, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing tonight? Uh, I, I can do my Ellis impression, if you like, or uh, I do a really great Clark Gable, but uh, no, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm, I think I'm delighted Jeff, to be here. I think Jeff would love to hear both of those impressions. He he's <laughs> obviously has got the Clark Gable mustache, but he is a huge Elvis aficionado. Almost. Well, my wife thinks he looks like Errol Flynn, so uh, <clears throat> he's in very, very good company. Well, there you go. So let's just go back a little bit and just start a baseline starting how did you get into the history of world war ii the you know the hobby of living history or reenacting as most people know it as what when did the bug bite you and how long well, have you it, been uh, it... spending your family's finances on silly collectibles and, and uniforms <laughs> like the rest of us do yeah I, every time i hit that you know that buy button on ebay i feel guilty but <clears throat> um no, I have. Um, uh, I have to blame my parents, which is you know psychologically convenient. My parents were uh, uh, Pearl Harbor survivors. Uh, my dad was thirty years in the Navy. He joined in thirty-five, retired in, in nineteen sixty-five. Um, my parents were sent to, to uh, Pearl Harbor in nineteen thirty-nine and were there for the attack. Wow. Um, and we grew up with those stories. Great deal of pride. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. We were. Uh, what I found out later was sort of interesting is, is when I was ten. My dad retired, the family retired to Coronado, which is, Coronado is kind of like the um, the San Antonio of San Diego in the sense that San Antonio apparently has the largest collection of retired Army and Air Force generals in the world. Coronado has the largest collection of retired Navy admirals in the world. It's a great little town. It's adjacent to the Naval Air Station North Island. What I found out many, many years later, although I knew a couple of my classmates in, in school had fathers who were at Pearl Harbor, Found out later there were eight or ten classmates who all had fathers who were at Pearl Harbor, and I had no idea. And had I known any of this, I certainly would have made an effort to you know try to track them down and, and talk to them if they would if they would talk about it. So we grew up with those stories about about World War um, World War Two. Um, my father, like a lot of veterans, didn't talk much about the details. No, not and at all. And that was my mother, my mother who filled in the blanks. But she has some some wonderful stories about uh, living in Honolulu before before the attack. Um, and then uh, I was always interested in theater. So I was, you know, unconsciously try to find some way to combine the two. And my first real interest in this was I, when I was in high school. Um, it was uh, December 8th, 1971. 
And it was the 30th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I convinced the school administrators to, to play FDR's uh, uh, war address to Congress um, as if it was a bulletin coming in from President Nixon. And they, they, they went along with that and they did that. And nobody understood why. <laughs> but I always wanted to play FDR. I thought FDR was just such a great character because he's got a lot of charm and a lot of humor, which, you know, with a lot of historical figures, you don't have that unless you're portraying Winston Churchill. You know, so he was my main focus. And then as I got a little older, I learned more about MacArthur. Now, what's interesting about MacArthur, my dad being a Navy guy, wasn't terribly impressed with MacArthur, as most Navy guys are not. My mother thought he was absolutely wonderful. And um, she once told me that he goes, he's kind of like a Telemundo star. Hmm. You know, he's very, you know, he's very emotional and he's very, you know, uh, 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 expressive with his emotions. And she thought, she thought, <laughs> she thought, she thought this was absolutely great. So... <laughs> So I, you know, I say I got two different stories about MacArthur, you know, from whichever parent it was. But uh, uh, I think my first time I portrayed MacArthur was kind of interesting. It was a high school assembly, and uh, <clears throat> someone had come up with the idea. It was for the homecoming, and the uh, the football team was coming back, and uh, the the commissioner of Pep, who was in charge of these things, said, uh, "We're going to have a theme. It's going to be called the No Substitute for Victory. That's going to be the theme of this uh, <laughs> this particular." Pepper and I said, well, that's great. I'll come as MacArthur because he's the one who said that. So I came out and I took one of my dad's commander's caps and I uh, got a plain cover for it. And I think I stitched on some gold braid around the band and just kind of put this thing together. And I had a trench coat on and came out. Going out by. <laughs> that was my first, I think I was 17 years old. Oh, and I got over to the Naval Air Station North Island to the uniform shop. And they still had the five-star insignia that you can buy for Fleet Admiral. Fleet Admiral wow. and General of the Army is the same thing. They're identical. And they were sterling silver, and they were $18.95, which means I don't know how I had that much money because in, adjusted for inflation from 1973 or 72, whenever this was, it's like $100. Or a tank of gas, <laughs> I, whatever came first. I, I, I still have them, and I, I still wear them when I do my, my MacArthur impersonation. Real quick, I don't want to – I don't want to – I don't want to pass over this. I don't know if the audience heard it, if Jeff caught. His school had a commissioner of PEP. We had a commissioner of PEP. I am assuming the commissioner of PEP organized the PEP rallies? The PEP rallies, uh, the PEP band, and all any school assemblies that had to do with the school spirit. Now, when one runs for the commissioner of PEP, is that as rugged and rough as running for the student council president? Or is that... No. <laughs> Step up no. from AV. <laughs> Let's just say it's not as well respected as other other commissioners <laughs> on the board. Well, but I... it's considered to be it's considered to be important. But uh, it was usually a member of the pep band. And the pep band. I, I don't know why. You know, the pep band would break into uh, "Mighty Oregon," which was our school song, um, whenever there's a touchdown and so forth. It was, it was very, very you know uh, dramatic. Um, but I remember this one guy played the flute in the pep band. It's like you never heard him because he was completely drowned out. <laughs> but you know, he just he just plugged away though. You know, but commissioner of pep. That and the fact that you got away with having a corn cob pipe in your high school. <laughs> yeah, like well, you know, I was in Navy school and <laughs> this kind of, of course I was always, you know, I was six foot four, so I was pretty hard to miss. So I although I came which no one appreciated was that uh, when I came out wearing my trench coat and my sunglasses and pipe and cap. Um, I actually had my pants were wet from the knees down, and I had a couple of strands of seaweed nice. draped around my ankles, and no one got that. No one even noticed it. So, well, see, that's that that's really the nice touch. that's the um, foreshadowing of your future of being a living historian and getting it right, right. all the way down to the every, every detail. Yeah, the, the stitch Nazis. Yes. <laughs> well, the other thing you said too, which 
Jeff and I pointed out in the past, but we don't bring it up too much, is the kind of acting side of living historians. You need to be two things yeah. to be, a, well, three things to be a living historian. Well, I guess four, but researcher, first and foremost. Second right. is a wardrobe department. Third, depending on how deep you want to get and how you want to present yourself at a, yes. an event, an actor. And, yes. And most in, a convincing, a convincing actor. And yes. you have to have a bit of a salesman. I tell people to be a living historian is kind of like the guy who works the booth at the trade shows. <laughs> By yeah. the end of the weekend, you've given your spiel, your sales pitch so many times that, you know, after a few years into this, if you're doing the same impression, you're just like that guy who's trying to sell that that new computer or that new piece of technology at the trade show who's been there for two weeks. It's you're no. just you're selling it. Yeah, I don't know if Jeff told you this, but the uh, the first time I appeared at the Pacific Combat Center uh, at the museum is I, I contacted him by email and invited myself. And I had this I had this great I, my wife has an, has a cousin who lives 10 miles out of town of Fredericksburg. So it was all under the guise of, well, listen, I'm going to be out there anyway, Jeff. And so <laughs> so I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> I and he'd never this. seen me. He'd never seen me before, so you know, it's an act of faith on his part. I kind of did the same thing. I'm like, hey, um, I'm going to come out and do a podcast. Why don't I bring my uniform? You supply the weapons, and I'll participate in the activity. Yeah. So I did the same thing while I'm here. So it well, you really, 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 if you're I, really I just makes it dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the Walt Disney for living historians. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people it was like you know if you watch Saving Private Ryan, I was like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg at the same time. It was amazing. <laughs> Not that I had that kind of talent, but at those jobs. Yeah. When did you? Yeah. When did you participate in your first organized living history event where it was more than just you performing in your wet trousers in front of your high school audience who didn't? Get I would the say well, well, actually, we go back ways. There's this one character I hadn't mentioned. Um, the actual first living after after I did MacArthur at the at the Pepper Alley, um, it was um, it was about ten years later, and um, a friend of mine in the local Kiwanis Club. This was up on the Monterey Peninsula, which is just south of San Francisco. Um, uh, knew of my interest in history, knew that my interest in, in, in Baden Powell. Robert Baden Powell was the founder of the British Boy Scout movement, and he was this very colorful Lieutenant General of the British Army. Um, he asked me, he said, "Would you?" Um, You've read about Baden Powell. I said, Yeah, he's really a fascinating character, you know. So he's a crossdresser, amongst other things. He used to, you know, <laughs> back, you know, this is this is not unusual for the British Army. You know, back in the days when they were out out, out in the jungle somewhere, you know, somebody had to play the women part. So mm -hmm. apparently Baden Powell was very good at that. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so he asked me to come to speak to the, the the Boy Scout troop on Baden Powell. And this living history group had just come through the Monterey area. And they had, you know, Abigail Adams with them and, and uh, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. And they were a, a group from Los Angeles. I think they were called the American Living History Theater. I don't think they're around any longer. This must be around 19, 1980, 1981. So it's a few years ago. So my wife and I went and watched this presentation. And I turned to her. I said, you know, I could do that. I mean, I wanted to do that with FDR. And I did that for MacArthur at the end of so um, I contacted my my friend, the scoutmaster, and I said, why don't I come and talk as Baden-Powell rather than about Baden-Powell? I told him about the living history thing. And so I rushed and put together a uniform and wrote out a script and, and, uh, and uh, you know, set the stage. And um, that was my very first time I did this. Now, interesting story about that. 
is uh, for that presentation, we were going to have a special guest come out from the Carmel Valley, but he had the flu that evening. He couldn't make it. It was General Jimmy Doolittle. Oh, wow. It was my one, my one chance to meet him, and he <laughs> couldn't make it that night. He was, this was like, this was several years before he passed on. So, so it's like, you know, oh boy, talk about missed opportunities. Real quick. So that um, was probably the first first le legitimate living history, you know, where I actually wrote it out, did the, you know, did the costuming parts and, and, and did those kind of things. And then I went on to, uh, that summer, I went on to uh, portray that for a group of scoutmasters who come from out of state. And then um, every Friday night, I went down to into Big Sur to the, the, the Boy Scout summer camp. And we did like a fireside presentation where I walk out of the gloom and do the state and Powell thing. I did that for like six weeks. And so I, I probably got observed by like 3,000 scouts over the period of this one summer. So, well, so hey, that was it. So. Real quick question. Is that why we we're called the Boy Scouts of America? Because it didn't start here? Yes. Yes. I just assumed like every self-centered American that we created and it started here. But now well, that it makes did. sense. Well, you know, we had, we had earlier versions. We had what was called the Woodcraft Rangers. Oh, okay. And there was another organization um, uh, whose name I can't think of right now. is basically built on Indian lore. And these two groups kind of did the same thing the scouts did, but the scouts were better organized. And the American businessman was over in England, over in London in uh, 1910. And uh, he got lost in the fog and the scout came upon him and said, can I help you, sir? And he said, uh, well, I'm looking for this address because well, I know where that I'll take you there. So he, um, he escorted them there. And then the man, the businessman said, well, who are you? And why are you dressed like this? And he explained the situation. He said, if you like, you can come around to, I believe the headquarters is called Guildhouse, if I remember correctly. And um, gave him a card, and so the, this this businessman showed up the next day, learned all about scouting, got every bit of information, took it back to the United States, contacted his friends, and within about six months, there was a scouting movement in the United States. Uh, there was a guy named Thomas, oh, oh, I can't remember now, Seton, I think, S S E T O N, who basically was with the Woodcraft Rangers, and he he just he went to the other side. He thought the scouting thing was just fantastic, so they folded all that in and created this, and of course. I think the American Boy Scouts are probably just because out of population size have done probably expanded to more than any other country. But uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's just a really fascinating. In fact, my uh, my wife got a scholarship to USC several years later, and and uh, she had a World War One history class, and um, she was asked to write on the, the students were asked to, to pick one aspect of, of the of the of the uh, the Great War, the First World War, that was. Uh, uh, unusual, and she talked about what the Boy Scouts had done, uh, you know, for scratch rides and so forth. And she she got a, a very nice comment back that you know the professor had never seen a, a paper on this and how 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 thrilled he was because it's an aspect he really hadn't considered. So, uh, so see, my wife actually listens to me. We actually we works both ways. <laughs> at what point did the Boy Scouts establish a defined uniform? The reason I ask that is I'm on Wikipedia right now and I'm looking at. Interestingly enough, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio after I left Kentucky. I'm actually looking at troop, um, a Boy Scout troop in 1918 from Columbus, Ohio. Oh, and boy. They, yeah. They, look, they have the campaign hats, which were called, they were called BPs or Baden Powell's in honor of him. Not only that, but their jackets look straight out of World War One. It looks like they all got yeah, their father's the World yeah. War One tunics. Yeah. Yeah. They've had a lot of uniform changes. When I was in the Scouts in the mid 1960s, uh, we had this kind of. Um, it was sort of a sage color, uh, long trousers or short trousers, and then either the short sleeve shirt or the long sleeve shirt. And um, um, but you know the knee socks and the shorts were always a very very big part of that. Um, 
Interestingly, the, the uniform that Baden Powell wore was, uh, was, and I modified a Marine Corps uniform. It was a Marine Corps style tunic. And the Marine Corps tunic is very similar to the British Army tunic. Um, no epaulets. Um, he had a, one of those high Hoover collars. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the, uh, the shorts and the knee socks and so forth. Um, and, and it was basically, it was what, it's what we call, what the British call khaki, which is basically olive drab. Yeah, it's like a nicer, it's like a more flattering shade of olive drab, not not the uh, suntan, which you know we think of. But um, the I know the Boy Scouts now have basically gone with which is essentially like a park ranger uniform. It's you know the dark green shorts and the khaki shirt. I was in Cub Scouts in the yeah. mid '80s. My brother was in Boy Scouts, and by then it was for all intents and purposes just a blue or khaki dicky shirt with yeah. some patches on it. Yeah. I mean that's. Yeah pretty much it you don't have the dickies logo on it but it's it's that normal mechanic style work shirt cut with just yeah. pant and shorts. Minimum, minimum of stitching <laughs> wonder when the bandana handkerchief came into play that was very early on you know there are pictures of baden powell wearing that um, uh in world war one and he wore a uh i researched this because uh Back in 2018, the pastor of our church, his son became an Eagle Scout. And so I happened to mention in passing to the uh, pastor's wife, I said, oh, you know, I did the Baden Powell thing like 35 years ago. So she said, I've got to have you. So I <laughs> put together this, I sort of put together this uniform very, very, very quickly um, and uh, and uh, got a little fake mustache and, and showed up uh, with this. And um, uh, but it, it, I went very, it went very, very well, you know, because I, as I walked through the congregation, we did this at our, at our, in the sanctuary of our church. And um, I, I knew enough about merit badges where I would stop and look at the scouts and say, well, you know, things haven't changed much since I passed away. And, and um, oh, what's this badge here? This is uh, this. And what's this badge over? I don't recognize this one here. So it was, it was very, very, very fun. But, and it was uh, that uniform was uh, was very similar to what they were. Because one of my comments was, well, the uniforms haven't changed much. Because, you know, there's a picture of Baden Powell. He's wearing dark green shorts and a khaki short sleeve shirt he's got the blue the blue neckerchief on so there's some significance to the color i'm not sure what it was so after you did your years at the boy scout camps and um getting that impression which is great history i mean especially for them when did your oh, first yeah. when did yeah. your first um participation in an organized world war ii event come along uh that would have been in uh 20 2012 and that was at fort macarthur here in the here in los angeles it's uh los angeles harbor it's called san pedro it's a neighborhood of the city of los angeles um and that's an event that uh, it's kind of funny actually i first went to the event in the year 2000 i took my son with one of my sons with me and there was a guy there doing macarthur he was i was about uh i think i was about 45 at the time i'm 69 now so it was a few years ago uh and this guy who was doing MacArthur was probably 70. I thought, God, I thought he was ancient, <laughs> which is almost how old I am now. <clears throat> and um, so, uh, but uh, I was very, very impressed. It's um, it's an old coastal artillery fort, of which there aren't that many left. A lot of them have been restored. Fort MacArthur, incidentally, is not named for Douglas MacArthur. It's named for Arthur MacArthur, his father. When they created those forts around 1912, uh, those forts were named for Medal of Honor winners. So lost, and he had been um, he had been in command of what they call the California Department around 1905, 1906, and <clears throat> he was very much a booster for uh, for developing Los Angeles and developing a harbor. So he was that's why the fort was named for him. So that was the first event I went to uh, um, in the year two thousand. 
Um, and they've been doing this for about 10 years. And this was like the biggest event, living history event, west of the Mississippi. Very, very impressively done. So I talked to this gentleman. His name was Dennis Leslie. He's since, since uh, passed away. So um, um, I went home and put together my my costume, my excuse me, my uniform. <laughs> <laughs> Your impression. Uh, here we go, yeah, the cap, yeah. Um, and um, I kept in contact with a few people, and uh, that's the one impression I wanted to do. And he retired in 2012, so I waited 12 years. I'm very patient. But, you know, meanwhile, of course, I've been reading up on MacArthur and so forth. So when he retired, I just moved right in. I contacted, they, have a, they had a group of Philippine scouts there, and I contacted them, and uh, they didn't know what to make of me. Again, you know, this is where I invited myself, and they kind of thought, who is this guy? You know, there's a real, when you contact people, Jeff can tell you about this, there's a really fine line between, is this guy a crackpot or is he, is he legitimate? Sure. <laughs> so, so it's a little hard finding that line sometimes. But they invited me to come along and they had done a fantastic, they actually had put together a, a frontline um, Batan um, uh, unit uh, for the for the scouts. And they, they had a the artifacts, typewriters, telephones, paperwork, maps, charts. They just did a first-class display. And they were very, very nice. And I went there that first year, and then I, they invited me back the following year. Um, and I, um, <clears throat> by 2014, I would do the opening speech when, the, when we started the proceedings because of telling the history of, of Arthur MacArthur and why the fort was named after him, which was uh, kind of nice. The speech, I, <laughs> speech got a little longer every year. Someone sent me a copy, and I realized it was nine minutes long. I thought, oh, my God, that's horrible. So I following year, I cut it down to five minutes. So I thought that was too long. But it, it turned out very, very well about how, how he got his Medal of Honor. And uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this story, unless you're a big fan of MacArthur. Um, but we had uh, – that that was a, a marvelous event. It was The last event was in 20, 2018 and then in 2019 they scaled it back to basically just you know the but we had everybody we had roman legionnaires we had this one guy who came dressed like a caveman so it was a timeline you know, event then had, had, you know had the skins on in a club and um he showed up by one year before he, he came and I, I knew this guy because he does all different types of impressions he said they weren't going to let me in i said well i tell you what, i'll make a make an announcement so when i opened up the proceeding they said welcome to fort MacArthur." Named in honor of Lieutenant General Arthur MacArthur, because I uh, can't, couldn't help but noticing that um, a caveman is with us today. <laughs> I said, so there's just a few titters of laughter, and I went on to say something to the effect that uh, um, what he lacks in verbal skills, he more than makes up in the comfort of his uniform. <laughs> and so, anyway, <laughs> so well, you know, he it's got a, a big kid. It's interesting because <laughs> we have. Well, we used to have more when I first started. There's fewer and fewer, but we had a few timeline events down here in Florida. And obviously, yeah. it being Florida, we'd have a couple people doing their Seminole Indian impressions. And they're just out there in just a loincloth and face paint and just doing oh, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. And we'd yeah. obviously, we'd have some people doing the conquistador stuff. And here comes the horses trampling through. I mean, it was cool. Um, we don't have them as much as we used to, which is sad. We really... Oh, I just thought it was just wonderful. In fact, you know, my, my favorite memory of that whole event, when it's over now, was that um, there was a little bit of a hill that as you, the units, units would march in and they would they would mass at the base of the flagpole of the fort where we'd raise the colors. And I gave my little, you know, welcome to Fort MacArthur speech. But as the American colonial forces came with their flags flying, they turned that riot. It was absolutely moving experience. Just, you know, just the, the color of everything. 
Yeah. But we had all sorts of people. We had Russians toward the last few years. We had Japanese soldiers, Chinese soldiers. It's just absolutely fantastic. And it was a, it was a great event. And I'm sorry to see it. Uh, the 2020 so kill it. I'm sorry. The 2020 kill it. Uh, no, actually, it was uh, there was a uh, the, the fort was run by the L.A. City Department of the Parks and Recreations. And, um, you know, there were cannons that were fired. And there were a lot of local residents who uh, complained about the noise. So we got more and more. The big thing they do there and they 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 uh, <laughs> they uh, they were going to do this last year, but they had to cancel was it's the great Los Angeles air raid. Now, if you ever saw the movie 1941, yep. that's actually based on something that actually happened. Apparently, a bunch of weather balloons. Well, let me back up here. In February of 1942, a Japanese submarine attacked a refinery just north of Santa Barbara. They fired a few shells and did very did very little damage. Within a couple of days, some apparently some weather balloons got loose and the alarm went up and people assumed that the Japanese planes were attacking Los Angeles. And they, they fired over 6,000 rounds, wow. anti-aircraft rounds. And, uh, actually, uh, about four or five people died two of them from heart attacks and the other from falling debris. But the city was completely panicked. So to honor this event, the fort puts on this thing called the Great L.A. Air Raid. It's done like the last Saturday of every February. And um, they have a dance band that comes out. People show up mostly in civilian clothes, but it's it's very, very well attended. I'm always there to greet them as General MacArthur when they arrive. <clears throat> and it's um, it's on it's right off the Pacific coast. It faces Catalina Island and because it's February, it's like 40 degrees and the wind's blowing. And, you know, mm -hmm. and so I, I had invested in long underwear because my thin little khaki uniform wasn't keeping me warm enough. But uh, at the end of the evening, they get this countdown that they the, the announcer comes on and says, you know, we just received word from headquarters that there's uh, some, some planes have been sighted and we're going to go to a, you know, a, a yellow alert. And then finally at, uh, at nine o'clock, uh, the lights go out, the air raid sirens come on, and they have some incredible air raid sirens from the actual fort nice. from the 1930s. They crank those things up. You feel like you're in London with you know, with the Edward R. Murrow. Absolutely, you know, it just makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up. And then they start firing guns off. Well, clearly the neighbors didn't like that very much. It's a coast artillery fort. The, uh, the, uh, the actual um, emplacements are still there. The guns are long gone. They were 16-inch naval rifles, same size that are on board the battleship. New Jersey or the Valley of Iowa or the, or the Wisconsin or the Missouri. Um, but uh, by the 1930s, they couldn't fire those guns because they would blow all the windows out of the neighbors' homes around the area. <laughs> yeah. And they were, you know, the city was paying you know, all these thousands of dollars in, in insurance costs. So, so the fort was, uh, the neighbors have always been less enthusiastic about it, but it's, it's amazingly intact. And it's, they've been slowly destroying the communication center and some of the tunnels. And to me, it's probably like the closest thing you'd ever see the tunnels on Corregidor. I think it's just it's just wonderful, wonderful group of people who still volunteer down there. It's like wow, it's really really a cool event though. The Great LA Air Raid. <laughs> we have a new event now, which is a different group of people that uh, puts called the Great the Grand Encampment, and it's kind of doing that same thing. We're we're inviting people from all different timelines to come. It's being held out in an airport out in Riverside, which is about sixty miles east of downtown Los Angeles. And it's, uh, it's on Veterans Day, Veterans Day, so it's around November 10th, November 11th every year. And the weather is absolutely perfect out there because it's like a high of 65. It's usually sunny. So even in the so inland, even in the Inland Empire, it's nice out there. Oh, you know that term, huh? You, oh, I've been out here. Before? I spent three years in Long Beach. So before I moved to Florida, okay, okay. I, I left yeah. Ohio. Yeah. I lived I lived a walking distance of uh, Cal State Long Beach, right there on Bellflower. Oh, sure. 
But um, well, it's, it's, it's this little private airport. It's called Flaybaugh, and it's named for a couple of guys. And a guy named guy was named Flavio, and a guy named Bob. So it's called Flaybaugh. And it's not that far from March Air Force Base. Speaking of which, you know, we we do a Spirit of Forty Five event every year. We do it. We alternate. We did it yesterday on board the SS Lane Victory, which is a two victory ship in San Pedro Harbor. Um, and uh, they pipe MacArthur on board. We have an Admiral Nimitz who comes on board, and and. and Admiral Nimitz gives his speech, which he gave, uh, he broadcast to the nation right after the surrender ceremony on board the Missouri. It's a wonderful speech. And MacArthur gets you, it's Douglas MacArthur's show. You know, he does basically runs the whole thing. But that's, it's a great event. But we did a similar event a year ago out at, uh, at March Air Force Base. The hangar was air conditioned. It was 100 degrees outside, you know, August in Riverside. Yeah. So. Yeah, we have a we have a Liberty ship in Tampa. It's called the SS American Victory, and it goes out in Tampa Bay. And much like the uh, city of LA, you can't exactly go firing off big old you know fifty millimeter. No, no. Blanks. In fact, our our ship, our, our Victory ship, is is inoperable right now. They're having boiler problems, and they they have two problems. They don't have enough money to repair, and they don't have the people to repair. You know, it's one of those kind of things where it's 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 you know it's boiler tubes. Ours but, just got out of dry dock. But what I was going to say is how they got around potential damage from the large percussion from the uh, cannons is they would literally just fire off three or four 12 gauge blanks at the same time oh, <laughs> through yeah. the barrel. Yeah. And it gives it a little bit of boom, but not enough to rattle windows and set off car alarms. And we would float around shooting up Tampa Bay and then we would head back and they would have, they'd well, have we, a handful we, we of us. We the same thing. We, we, I was on a couple of those because we go out to the Catalina Island and then we would be uh, attacked by uh, uh, three, uh, Probably T six trainers painted like Mister Smiths, nice. And then uh, three uh, three T six painted like Mustangs would chase them off, and uh, we we would fire back at them with our, our deck guns, which were probably just you know shotgun shell type of thing. It's all very funny because uh, um, the, the uh, captain comes on board the loudspeaker and says, "We think we found a German spy on board who may have radioed our position." So a few minutes later, they bring this guy out. He's dressed up in this Luftwaffe colonel's uniform, <laughs> and they've got him in irons, <laughs> and they bring him around the deck, and, and so. <laughs> Not a very so incognito spy, but oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Full uniform. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't want to be. It doesn't want to be executed for espionage. As <laughs> someone who spent twelve years studying MacArthur before you actually got to do your impression live, what's... well, actually, yeah, but I've been a fan of MacArthur since I was about eighteen. So really, it's been I've been studying MacArthur for God fifty years now. I. Uh, I mean, I always knew who he was when I was I was working in the library in my senior year in high school. And I came across. Of all things, a picture book. It's just a foot. It's right. It was published right after he passed away in 1964. And I remember when he died. Um, I was about 10 years old, and uh, my mother was very upset. <laughs> but <laughs> your father, not so much. <laughs> Father's like, oh yeah, okay. I remember years later, I parents were up visiting, and I was uh, I was wearing a pair of uh, pleated khaki pants, and my father says, "Oh, you got some, uh, you got some of those pleated pants like Doug out Doug used to wear." And I said, "Yeah." yeah. <laughs> You know, dugout used to wear those things to hide his paunch. You know why he wore those pleats, huh? <laughs> <laughs> on, his, on these little digs. <laughs> well, but uh, no. So I had been studying them, studying MacArthur since I was. Uh, but you know, this is uh, this is in the early seventies, and I was lucky enough to uh, to meet people who actually I who had either you know seen him in person, or um, well, for example, in nineteen eighty, when I was living up in Northern California, I wrote an article. For our local newspaper, it was a Sunday feature on, this, on the anniversary of his 100th, 100th birthday. And um, the following morning, I walked into this stationery store where I was working part time. And um, 
the uh, the store manager who was a local city councilman knew my interest in McCarthy. Says, "I want you to meet somebody, Bob. Come on over here." He says, uh, "This is a uh, General Edwin Wright." And of course, I knew who Edwin Wright. He was another one of these guys who lived in Carmel Valley. Probably was a neighbor of General Dulo. And Edwin Wright was later was was in in during the Korean War. He was MacArthur's operations officer, and his nickname was Pinky. I don't know, probably know his school name. And so <laughs> I knew right away who he was. So and I said, Pinky, Pinky Wright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was so flattered that some twenty five year old kid actually knew his nickname. So he invited me over to his home, and I sat there for, with him for like three hours talking about MacArthur. And all I wanted to know was. What was he like? What was he like to work for? And I didn't take any notes. I didn't take a paper with me or a pen. I just soaked it out like a sponge. I still remember the conversation. And I just wanted to get a, an idea. What was he like talking to him? Was he really as dramatic as, as people you know, said? I mean, did he pace like people say he paced a lot? I was just trying to get a really sense of what he, MacArthur was actually like. And he was very, very helpful, very, very observant. A very, very nice man to spend time talking to me about that. So I was lucky enough to meet these people. Um, that was probably the, the, the only person I met who actually had worked with MacArthur closely. But I had met people who were, I remember seeing him in parades and so forth. And it was really a, a really great opportunity. I mean, he only, he'd only been dead for eight or nine years when I first got interested in it. So, well, so I was very fortunate that way. As someone who spent all that time studying him and learning everything you can, what's something you can share with our audience that you know that you've discovered about him that's not published in every article, every book, every TV show about the man? What's something you can, maybe you feel that people need to know about MacArthur that isn't shared enough? Two things, his wisdom and his sense of humor. And yes, he did have a sense of humor. Um, His wisdom, of course, is that, you know, um, he just had a really good sense of how far you can push people, um, how, how, how to motivate people. How to manipulate people. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a story where one of my favorite stories about him was as as, uh, as they were moving north in 1944 to move up to Hollandia and leave Australia behind. They could move the headquarters, you know, in, in preparation of actually moving on to the Philippines. Um, a group of the staff officers had put together uh, a large consignment of various uh, alcohol, uh, whiskey, gin, uh, vodka, and they'd had this all packed up to take with them. But MacArthur, who was very much a control person, you know, wanted to know, he wants to know everything that's coming up to Hollandia, and he wants to sign off on it. So the uh, staff officers, you know, no one's got the, got the courage to go and ask MacArthur to okay all this. And so he, um, they, uh, they choose MacArthur's personal physician, um, and uh, he's, um, he's given the task of, um, of you know, making the question, asking the question, can we move these, these spirits up to our headquarters with us? So he, he asked General MacArthur, and MacArthur says, um, what are the enlisted men drinking? And someone said, beer. He said, okay, well, the, the enlisted men are drinking beer. I think it's good enough for the officers. So send beer, leave the other stuff behind. So so that's a great story. Uh, my other favorite story about him was during the Japanese surrender ceremony on board the Missouri. I mean, probably one of the most somber events you can, you can picture, an extremely photo, well photographed, photographed in color. There are some marvelous stories about that. And one of them was that um, when MacArthur was in Manila before the war, you may recall that famous cover in Life magazine, which is his profile, and it says Commander Far East. The date is December 8th, 1941. It was published the week before, as was the custom, but it had that Monday morning date on it. And 
Claire Booth Luce, the famous playwright and congresswoman, had gone out to interview him the summer before. It was in July of 1941 when he had been recalled to duty. That's why he's wearing that uniform. That's his, you know, new uniform. Um, <clears throat> so she sent along a photographer named Carl Mydens. And Carl Mydens was one of the great live photographers of the Pacific War. Iwo Jima, uh, Okinawa, and uh, Polish surprise, and he got to know MacArthur pretty well. He and his wife were both interned in a in a civilian concentration camp for a year, uh, Santa Tomas in, in Manila. Uh, but he eventually worked out where they got a release, and they went over and he, they were stationed in Germany. His wife was a correspondent for uh, for Life magazine, so um, he got reassigned uh, back to uh, to the Pacific when the Japanese surrendered because he wanted to be on hand for the surrender ceremony. So um, during the signing of the documents, the representative from Canada, uh, who apparently was suffering from a migraine, signed on the wrong line. Oh, yeah. And there was this pause there. It's, it's a famous story. There's a pause there. So Maiden grabs his camera. He runs across the quarterdeck and takes his picture of the document. And these two big Marines come over, and they pick him up by either arm. They start to carry him off. And as they walk past MacArthur, MacArthur's looking at him, you know, sort of stone-faced, and he gives him this big wink like, <laughs> so, right in the middle of the ceremony so there's stories like that and there, there are other numerous ones that you know that uh, it's like when you see MacArthur depicted in a film you know uh, movies and so forth uh, two things occur to me one thing he's, he's, he's always humorless and there's no and, you know he can be kind of witty he can make these wry comments about things that's never shown he's always very serious and somber plus the fact is why do they always get guys who look like Irish truck drivers to play <laughs> MacArthur you knows that <laughs> These big burly guys with big square jaws, you know. And you look at pictures of MacArthur; he looks like um, he looks almost Mediterranean. You know, his yeah. mother was—I don't know. Yeah, he's got this kind almost uh, Italian. Yeah, you, you can imagine him wearing a toga. You know, two two thousand years ago, he's got that. He's got this real sensitive look in his eyes. You know, and he's not the kind of guy you think of as being a general. You know, when I think of a general, I think of you know Pat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's who most I think most Americans think of as you know not not MacArthur. MacArthur would get that kind of steely look, you know, like. I'm trying really hard to look tough, but you know, <laughs> you see him in unguarded moments. He's looking, he looks, he gets really upset looking about stuff. I think he's really high strung. Twitched a lot, you know, hands are always moving type of thing. So, so those are things I try to incorporate. I tell stories about MacArthur when I, um, when we go to various, you know, air shows or events like that. So I want people to try to see the overall picture. And really the best source for all that is just read the memoirs of people who work with them, his doctor, his pilot, there's a correspondent who worked for CBS named Bill Dunn, who had a great, great account called Pacific Microphone. He was there at the fall of Manila, and he came back. He's the guy, when, when you see them waiting ashore at Tacloban in October of 1944, and Jeff, I may have teased you about this. I said, we need this guy wearing civilian clothes. He's carrying a, a portable, <laughs> portable typewriter with him. There's this one guy who gets off the landing craft. He's got no helmet, no hat. He's got a portable typewriter. That's Bill Dunn. <laughs> so he's going to write the first story. So he was a marvelous, marvelous source of information. And all these guys, you know, just tell these stories. Uh, another great story was that uh, when MacArthur first arrived in Brisbane, where they were located at the very beginning of the war in March of 42, uh, uh, they didn't put any kind of guard uh, outside the elevator on, on the upper floors where he and his wife and son lived. So uh, apparently these two drunk sailors came in one night and knocked on the door. MacArthur wasn't there, but his wife answered the door and they said, well, we wanted to see the general. We want so <laughs> they got rid of those guys and they decided that they needed to put a guard. So they put an army guy up there and uh, he was some corporal. Uh, 
had a machine gun, sat outside the front door, and he dozed off one night. Nice. And um, he woke up because he felt something brush past him, and he looked and he saw the door closing. It was Mac back of MacArthur. MacArthur didn't even wake him up. So the guy's probably tired. So MacArthur's headquarters, his frontline headquarters, is that you know you show up there and you wouldn't know. I mean, it was completely unlike Pat. I mean, nobody wore ties. Um, MacArthur would walk around wearing like a bathrobe, his, his West Point bathrobe most of the day. And the guys on guard duty were just sitting around. I mean, it was very, very relaxed. He was not a spit and polish kind of guy. And you kind of get the idea that, you know, he was like Patton. He was the anti-Pat. I mean, Patton was all, Patton was this weird combination of chaos and extreme order. And MacArthur was like really just the opposite. MacArthur was very, everything was very, very con controlled, very contained, but he was very, very relaxed. And I think that's part of his charisma is that um, you look at him and physically he's very, very tense. You know, he's, his hands are always twitching and so forth, but he's always very kind of, you know, hey, whatever. I don't, I don't get upset about anything. So, Jeff, you got any so questions? I have his charisma. Uh, yeah, I got a couple of things. And I mean, first, I guess our listeners are well aware that, that Robert is very well versed in a numerous subjects and the knowledge you've been talking for about two and a half days straight. So, it's been unbelievable <laughs> absorbing all of this information. I've never uh, seen Jeff so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, two two things. Um, I, I want to go back and talk about your wife, and we're going to do that in a minute um, because it it really plays she's, she's with. Uh, me, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it really it, no, it it really plays in the things that we talk about a lot on the show with reenacting uh, mm -hmm. and the support. Um, but no, what I'd like to do before we go back to your wife, though, I'd like to kind of, you know, the impression that you said that your dad had of of General MacArthur, I feel like that's the overall majority, right? Oh, that's dug out, oh, yeah. dug, and this and that. Exactly. You know, Over, oh, yeah. I, yeah, and and I just doing a little bit of research before coming on tonight, you know, because I don't have an opinion either way. I thought he was a great general. Anybody that served in the army for fifty two years is probably doing something yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of superlatives. There's a lot of superlatives that are attached to MacArthur's name that I had no idea. And I think, oh. you know, when we just throw out Doug out Doug out there as World War II historians or, you know, people who think they know something about the man, if we really go back and look and really what he accomplished, uh, I mean, just prior to the First World War and then what he did with the 42nd Infantry Division. I did not oh, yeah. know no. that he was responsible for the Rainbow Division. That's an unbelievable- He was chief of staff, he put it, he put it together. And he, uh, yeah, he uh, was one of these kind of guys, who, he's always got the best people he could find for his staff people. And- um, Well, he wasn't chief of staff at the time, I didn't think. That's what really- No, no, he was- he, he was became chief, the division commander. Yeah, he was, he was the division commander very, very briefly, just right after the war, just for a few days. In fact, he was actually, he was put in for major general because that's the rank for, for a division. And um, uh, when he was, uh, when he went, when the unit was first formed in, in uh, 1917, the summer of 1917, he was made his chief of staff. He was, a, he was a Corps of Engineer guy. You know, the top 10% of the West Point grads would automatically go in the Corps of Engineers because they're the smartest. And he was an engineer for the first 15 years after he graduated, he was on the, he went to the general staff in 1912 and stayed on there and worked with Leonard Wood and people like this. Leonard Wood's a very interesting, huge influence on MacArthur. He and, and MacArthur's father were the two big, his two big uh, uh, mentors. Now, neither of them West Point graduates. And 
really guys who are kind of outside the mainstream as MacArthur was. I mean, MacArthur is, is like, you know, when you look at people like um, Fox Connor or, or, or Marshall or Eisenhower or Patton, you know, these guys are, they're all part of the art and the establishment. They go through all those service schools, you know, command and control and, and uh, army war college. They do all those things that, you know, if you're going to go for high rank, you have to do. MacArthur didn't do any of those. The only postgraduate course MacArthur ever took was, um, was an engineering course at Leavenworth, in, I think, in 1911. And then he came back the following year and taught it, taught that course again to, for other students. But he never went to any of the postgraduate schools. He didn't do those things you're supposed to do for high rank because he didn't need to. I mean, he already knew this stuff. He was really, right. uh, and I think he was basically homeschooled. He was a homeschooler, <laughs> essentially, what they call an autodidact. Um, yeah, he right. just uh, he created his own he created his own staff arrangements and, uh, and he, it goes back to what I said earlier about he, he was a very wise person, great deal of wisdom. I mean, he basically knew what he needed to do. And um, when I went back uh, to get my master's degree, what I wrote for my senior thesis was his reforms at West Point when he was superintendent there in 1919, 1922. And this is where you really see it because he's he's figuring you know, like most guys. There's another war coming in 20 years. It's going to be with Japan and probably Germany. We need to be ready for it. We're going to be occupiers. So what do we need to do? We need to change the curriculum here because we're still studying the Civil War. So immediately they start studying the Great War. That's the first thing they, they do. And he wants to expand the, the history in, in English department or one department at West Point. He wants them separated. And he wants, a, he wants a course put in with applied psychology. He didn't get that. That wouldn't happen until after World War II. He says, you know, 99.5% of all the men who served in World War I were civilian draftees. One half of 1% were regular were West Point graduates or regular army. And that was that was his, his whole plan for the rainbow, the rainbow division going back to the same because at the time, when we were talking about, they talked about, you know, let's send the regular army over there, which is what, 170,000 men. 1917 and Mark Arthur says no 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 we we can't squander those people you know, those are people who, who are they are the um, they're the intellectual uh, embodiment of the army they're, they're the ones who are trained we need to get those people to train civilians but we have to understand that we can't treat civilians like they're soldiers we've got to treat them with a certain amount of dignity and respect so that was his big takeaway and so when he became superintendent at West Point and he's, you know, wanted to put in these educational reforms, he was not particularly successful in any of it. He was pretty much stonewalled the entire way. He was able to make some changes, but not all of them. Plus, they, they kicked him out a year early because <laughs> Pershing didn't like what he was doing there. But regardless, um, he understood that future wars, it was going to be civilian army. He always, he, as his, his father and also Leonard Wood, had a very high opinion of, of civilian soldiers. He said, but you've got to treat them like civilians. He has a great quote. He says, you can lead them, but you can't bully them. And he's, he once said to his, his, his chief of staff at, at West Point, he said, I wonder how many of our guys are shot in the backs by civilians who just didn't like these SOBs. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it goes back to, you know, the, his whole concept of what, what is wisdom and, you know, you have to, you know, you know he's very pragmatic. You know, he's, he's not, he's not an ideologue. You know, he's not, liberal he's not conservative he's just somebody who says what works you know it doesn't matter you know it's like if you're going to talk about say universal health care in the united states for example whatever your opinion of that is if a person can say if we can prove to the american public and to congress that we'll actually save money 
by insuring everybody, then why not do it? Because it makes more sense. If, you, if your concern is it's cost too much, if we can show we can save money doing this, let's do it. See, that that would have been, if, if MacArthur had been president in the 1950s, that would have been his approach. Because he didn't care about, you know, the, the ideology behind something. It's like, if it works or if it doesn't work. I mean, in the broad sense, I mean, clearly, you know, it's like his reforms in Japan after, after World War II. But that's a whole different topic. Now, as you can see behind Jeff, and I'm going to impress Jeff real quick. Watch this. As you can see behind Jeff, he's got the February 13th, 1956 edition of the Life Magazine featuring General MacArthur. Um, is, that, is that where he's uh, he's leaning against the uh, the mantelpiece in his, uh, looks like his, his study or his living room? No, it's the one with... Uh, no, he's uh, shaking Truman's hand. It's, it's when uh, MacArthur had a chance to make his rebuttal. At him being relieved of command. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think it's because I think Truman's uh, memoirs had just come out. I believe that's what had happened. Well, the reason I bring that up is MacArthur was apparently loved by Life Magazine. He was on probably Henry, yeah Henry Henry Luce seven or eight covers, and not only was he and Jeff didn't see this. You recognize this young chap? Oh yeah. <laughs> I actually have the Lifetime magazine from August 3rd, 1942, Jeff. That is young. That's MacArthur's son. That is young Arthur MacArthur, which I know now is named after his grandfather. Because when I first saw it, I was like, why would Arthur, yeah. why would yeah. MacArthur name his son Arthur MacArthur? But now we know it's named after his father. But apparently, yeah. I was going to say that someone over at Lifetime magazine had a real love for MacArthur because I, I looked up quickly. I think he's on six or seven different covers, not to mention yeah. his son yeah. and then his hat. His hat's on a hat rack. Yep. So they were yes, yes, huge yeah, fans was, of him. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that hat on the hat rack too someday like that, when we have more time. Because that's not his actual hat. <laughs> that's, that's a hat that the War Department made up or the Pentagon made up in 1961 for him to wear when he went back to the Philippines to commemorate the 15th anniversary. And they did that because his actual hat was so badly deteriorated it was falling apart. I was at the museum, the MacArthur Museum Memorial, um, back in uh, 2018. I have a passing acquaintance with the, uh, the archivist there. We, we've emailed back and forth. So I was back for a parade in Washington, the, the Memorial Day Parade. It's MacArthur. And Norfolk is only about three hours away. In fact, I lived there as a kid when I was five or six. My dad was stationed there. So we went down there, and then uh, we met with the, with the, uh, the archivist friend of mine and, and the curator, and they actually have MacArthur, one of MacArthur's khaki uniforms there. So they actually pulled it out. It's in this like file drawer, like you see for Brilliance. They yeah. pulled it out. And it was just absolutely amazing. And I was realizing how many, how many of the, of the details I'd gotten right just by looking at photographs. But the, a lot of, to see it actually was quite interesting. Um, but he brought out the cap, the cap that's hanging on the, uh, on the coat rack on the cover of Life magazine. It's beautifully done. But you can tell because the visor is much, uh, has a much shorter visor, which was the current army style by the, by the 1950s and 60s. And apparently the story is, is that the Pentagon had somebody make that cap up for him and he wouldn't wear it. He wore back, he wore his original cap, which had a much bigger visor on his cap. Yeah, it seemed like the crown was a lot taller too on the original. Yeah, interesting about the, uh, the cap is that, uh, and a lot of people don't realize this, is that his cap was basically just the 1902 dress officer's cap, which is still being worn today. It's in, in blue, Navy, what's not Navy blue, it's Army blue. Um, it's actually not black. It's actually a blue color, um, but it's got the oak leaves that go around the band and you know the, the badge and so forth. And that cap was authorized for general officers in 1902, still being worn today. 
And what MacArthur did was, when he became field marshal of the Philippine Army in 1937, he wrote back to his hat maker in uh, New York and said, make me up, up a cap that make it in khaki, in khaki cotton, so I can wear it every day. So a lot of people talk about how MacArthur's cap was, you know, custom made, which it was. But it was specially designed by him, which it wasn't. It was just a standard general's cap made it in a different material. It's kind of silly. It's like wearing a seersucker top hat. You know, it's kind of silly. But. Sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it worked for him, and it's become his yeah, trademark yeah, next to the uh, the pipe and, and the here, aviators. Here, here again, you know, the whole spit and polish patent thing. And here's MacArthur's cap. And if you you tap gold that gold braid, you you put it on the tropics. Within about three days, it goes green. I mean, <laughs> because of the humidity. And that cap was looking pretty mingy by uh, after the PT boat ride to uh, Mindanao when they left Corregidor, uh, when they evacuated Corregidor. It was uh, it got drenched with seawater and it was looking pretty uh, pretty pretty nasty. Uh, about eight years ago, the MacArthur Memorial decided they were going to do mount a new display. Because the actual cap had been sitting flat on the surface, and over time, the cap you know it gets it gets kind of flattened. So um, they had a new uh, display there, and so this local news station came and covered it for it's like an eight minute thing. It's on YouTube; you can pull it up. And so they got the cap, and I'm looking at it, and it's absolutely amazing because there's this huge. It's all all this here is all sweat stained. This, this is all dark in here underneath the cap here, and it's just you know he wore a thing for 15 years. Yeah, and apparently got. I'm looking at a yeah. colorized photo of him, and I think it, I don't think it was colorized. I think it was shot in color. It's just a photo it's talking about World War One, World War Two, and Korean War. And yeah, underneath, right, right on at the bottom of the eagle, it's just a completely it's different a color yeah, brown. It's, it's, it's definitely so. The story salty. goes according according to one of his aides by by 1950, just before the Korean War, is apparently his wife made some comment because there was a big sweat stain on the, on the crown of the cap because it's you know they don't there's no there's no uh, lining there because it's it's too warm in tropics so his wife said she called him general she said general you gotta do something about that cap and so <laughs> he called him his aide a guy named sid huff and sid, sid huff writes about this in his memoirs he comes in one day and says sid genie says that i need to recover the top of my cap so uh can you take care of it for me and he said uh, yes sir how, how soon do you need it back he said well, I can give it to you tonight. I need it back tomorrow morning. <laughs> no rush. So, Jid, so that night, Sid goes home back to his quarters. And he digs through, you know, and of course, these staff off, they all have, they all have their uniforms custom made when they're in Japan. So, he finds a, a shirt that's a similar color to the cap. And he tracks down this uh, tailor who apparently was a tailor to the royal family and to the high military officers. And he takes it into him and says, We've got to cover this tonight. You've got to work tonight to do this. And the, and the Japanese tailor, he goes, Oh no, it's going to fall apart if I touch it. It's just, so, so what they did was they just took a they took a piece of acetate and they cut a circle on it. And they put that down on top, and then they cut out the shirt, put it down, and he just hand stitched. They laid right over the top, and they just slowly hand stitched the whole thing on top of that. And uh, so it's more of a replacement morning, shell than an actual. Yeah, yeah, it was actually just a replacement that. So uh, when you see the cap at the memorial in Norfolk, the top looks pretty good, but the rest of it looks pretty bad. So. And you know it's kind of when it happened because there's a there's a newsreel of him leaving his headquarters. It's January of 1950, so this is six months before the Korean War. It's his 70th birthday, and all these Japanese students, little boys and girls, are lined up there and they're waving American flags and they're singing "Happy Birthday" to him in Japanese. 
And he comes out and he stops. He takes his hat off and he doffs his hat to them. You see his big sweat stain on the top. So you know that's before Jeannie, Jeannie and MacArthur said anything to him about it. So, But poor Sid Huff, you know, he had to rush over and he probably sat up all night with the tailor, <laughs> make sure he didn't get screwed up. And then he had to run the hat back to the embassy where they lived. So the following morning when MacArthur left, he had his hat there. So <laughs> interestingly about that, you know, he had a he had a green wool cap made up, um, which appears in a couple of pictures. And it's, it looks identical to the khaki one, except it's done in OD. And it's on display at the Pentagon. There's a MacArthur corridor at the Pentagon. It belongs to the MacArthur Memorial Museum, but they have it on permanent loan at the Pentagon. Um, and he only wore that a couple of times. Apparently, uh, after the PT boat ride, his cap shrunk. So um, he had this green version made up, which he wore a few times. And then Sid Huff, the long-suffering aide to General MacArthur, <laughs> took the original cap back to New York. And he went back to Washington to meet with the people in the Pentagon. And they had the cap stretched out and rebuilt, brought it back. So, I mean, I love stuff like that. It's just, that's the stitch Nazi in me. So. Yeah. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, you do another unique impression that I think deserves some quality time spent on it. You want to explain to our audience how you got involved in one of your second primary or your, I guess your secondary impression that you do? Yeah. FDR? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, having parents who grew up in the Depression, hearing all these stories about FDR, and uh, uh, I saw a clip of FDR when I was in uh, high school, uh, and it was, um, he just reminded me of somebody in my family. And this was MacArthur also. There's, you, know, you find people that just, you know, it's like he reminds you of an uncle. And there's a quality about FDR. He's, um, it's some footage of where he's uh, being interviewed for a newsreel, and it's the camera keeps running and, and they're talking to him saying, well, Mr. President, we want you to turn your head this way. And he says, oh, like this. And he's just he's just real. It's just it's like he, he's like somebody, you know, yes. of course, that was the appeal. People talked about during his famous fireside chats. They felt like he was talking directly to them, you know, in acting. If you go to school in England to learn acting, as my wife did which is what they call technical acting. It's not method. It's just the opposite. They actually, you, you intellectualize everything. They have what they call first, second, and third circle. And, for example, when you're, if you're John Gilgood or Ralph Richardson or Lawrence Olivier and you're on stage and you're doing a third circle, you're talking to everybody in the theater. But first circle is you're talking to one person in the front row. And FDR had that ability where he to talk to people. It's like, oh, you know, FDR was the first president who uh, really brought informality to the White House. So uh, if, if, if you were to meet with President Hoover right before Roosevelt became president, he would say, he would call you Mr. Abernathy the entire time. FDR would say, well, I'm delighted to meet you, Don. And he'd go right to the first name. And uh, uh, a lot of people didn't like that. They weren't used to it because it's, it's too informal, especially for the 1930s and forth. But he had that ability just to connect directly with people. Um, which, you know, we talk about Ronald Reagan being the great communicator, but you know, a lot of people when Reagan was president said, well, you know, he's like FDR that way, but it's FDR really started that out. So FDR was somebody who was really kind of familiar. But the other thing FDR has going for him is he's funny. He's charming. He has a great sense of humor. He was known for quips, which is these like one line comments. Uh, probably the, and he was, he was irreverent. Probably uh, one of my favorite stories of that was oh, in the mid thirties, uh, you know, and back in those days, as they do now, uh, they would have the annual convention of governors where all the governors from all the states would come and meet with the president. They'd have conferences and so forth. So 
FDR had arranged to have a meeting with uh, six of the New England governors. And they, they all showed up for breakfast the following morning. And he forgot about it. He looked up from his Oval Office. He looked around and said, oh, well, you're not all here to secede from the Union office. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they, none of those thought it was very funny. But, <laughs> but he just had that way of just kind of, you know, connecting. And he's just a, a natural, natural born leader. Uh, and he was somebody that I actually that was the, really the first impression I ever wanted to do was FDR. I tried to convince our school to put on a, a marvelous play called Sunrise at Campobello, which the drama department thought was totally inappropriate for the school. And it's, it's, it was made into a movie in the 1960s with Ralph Bellamy uh, and Greer Garson playing Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, why you would get one of England's most beautiful actresses to play Eleanor Roosevelt, I have no idea. But they gave her the fake teeth and everything. But it's a or it's it's about his battle with polio and how he overcame that over a three-year period and so i thought it'd make a great a great play it's very inspirational of course i wanted to be cast as part of fdr <laughs> i'm going to put you on a spot here to prove a point we've been talking about stitch nazi all night and authenticity what year Which and model was his wheelchair oh fdr's yeah, what what year and model? He didn't have it? he didn't have a model year. He had four wheelchairs. There you go. He had <laughs> he had he had one at Hyde Park. Well, he had two at Hyde. He had one at Hyde Park. He had one at his what they call Top Cottage. Uh, he had one at um, Warm Springs and one in the White House. And uh, Jeff, did I send you a picture of the one I just I mocked up? Did I when I sent those pictures to you? Yeah, 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 did. yeah. So um, what we did, and of course, you know. Um, um, uh, if I can adapt something that's that's uh, available and make it look like it's authentic, I will do that first. It's my my car uniform is that's Dickie's pants and a hard shirt, which are heavily heavily tailored. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I brought this up in the past. Dickie's did make uniforms back there, and their modern day stuff hasn't changed that much. There might be a slight yeah. different angle on the pockets. You know the the yeah, lip the on shirts the are. Um, you know the work shirts is that that they have like they have one seam. They're not they're not double stitched, and, the, and any of the seams are not double stitched. They have a one piece collar. They don't have the banded collar. Kerhart had those, and I I bought a bunch of Kerhart shirts, uh, uh, and I had a tailor actually uh, modify them with the you know the, the the more pointed collar with the little flap on the collar. And he had one of those little western yoke things in the back of his shirt. It's like a little arch. Yeah, you see with western shirts, and. Um, and uh, which I didn't know about until I saw his actual uniform when I was in Norfolk. And he had elbow patches on there. They were the same color as the material, things like that. But um, no, FDR's wheelchairs were um, uh, uh, the, uh, the kitchen chair. And uh, he had a local blacksmith put together some bicycle wheels on a, on a metal frame. They painted all black. So for my wheelchair, I, I found an existing foldable wheelchair. Now, the type of wheelchairs you see now that fold up with the vinyl seat and the vinyl back, mm -hmm. um, they were they were made by a company called Everest and Jennings, and uh, and those that foldable wheelchair goes back to 1934, 1936. Very very spoke wheels. So I found one of those. Guy was selling them. You had like twenty in his in his uh, in his uh, garage. So the idea was I wanted something that was foldable so I could put it in the back of my car and take it with me. Otherwise, if I had a full size wheelchair, I have a little a little Hyundai and wouldn't fit in my car. So. Um, we adapted that. So, you know, he had the little wheels in the back, which are in the front. So we just turned the chair around. Yeah. Now, the problem is, is with wheelchair, modern wheelchairs, uh, they're tilted. So this, the back of the seat is, is lower than the front. So people don't slide out. 
So when you turn the chair around, it's just the opposite. You slide right out of it. So we had to we had to put in some springs in the front to to do that. And I painted it all black, and, and uh, my wife refinished the kitchen chair. So yeah, I'm looking at a photo of it now. I did a really really good job because that's what I was going to say. That's when you're doing an impression, depending on what impression it is. There's one piece of that impression that's required. <laughs> this is a particular yeah, one that's you're not that, going to pick that, up an at the front or English, World War II yeah. impression. So, I have I have a friend from church who uh, this this guy is we call him MacGyver because he can make anything. He's the kind of guy you want in your life over the cruise ship sinks. I mean, he can do anything. The kind of guy who takes a belt buckle and uses the, the buckle to make a fishing hook. You know, one of those kind of guys. So uh, I approached him about five years ago. I said I need some FDR leg braces, and so he got on. He went right to the FDR library website and he found he, not only did he find pictures of the of what the leg braces look like but he found a purchase order copy from 1926 from from fdr's uh, physician to a, a place that actually makes these and they were aluminum which which surprised he said, i didn't know they were using aluminum so he calls me up and said now this is a guy who's about 10 years older than i am he says robert do you think we should use slotted screws heads or uh, phillips i'm not sure because they had both of them in 1926. <laughs> so, that's a good question. And then it's like, I think, well, went, I think we went slotted because that's kind of like, you know, you know, a lot of that you have to kind of go by feel too. It's like, well, what looks more old fashioned? You know, you know, it might have technically been accurate, but people are, it's like when you do an impression, you go to Google Image and you look, you pull up the first 10 pictures and you go, okay, that's what people expect to see type of thing. And so, then, you know, you're, you know, you know, you want to, uh, you want to educate people, but not to the extent where, you know, it's, it's not organic. I guess the question so, is anyway, then is yeah. were those screws reset into nut search or were they using square head nuts? And then, yeah, well, then what the comfort <laughs> level is on that. I, I didn't want to go there with him. Yeah. <laughs> you figure that out. So now I've had to put a I've had to glue a few of the few in the pot. I carry extra extra screws with me. Now the actual braces that he wore actually went up to below his armpits. Wow. It's almost like it's like an ectoskeleton that he wore under his clothes. That was, that's what kept him upright. So ours just go up to uh, yeah, we should have sent a picture of those. But ours go up just just below the, the knee, and they have a they have a leather strap there. We put them in there. So when you're sitting there now, what's interesting is that he didn't wear the leg braces when he was in the wheelchair because he didn't need them. The wheelchair was designed or those four wheelchairs to get him from his desk to a, to he'd go over to a sofa or to a chair. The wheels were actually a little bit lower than the seat, so he could slide right off and put himself onto a, another chair, like an armchair or something like that. So the, um, and of course, nobody ever saw him. No, no member of the public ever saw him in a wheelchair. And the, uh, but uh, the braces were there so he could appear to walk. And of course he couldn't, could not walk. Um, and there is a, there's a marvelous account written by a polio patient named Gallagher, who wrote this about 40 years ago. It's called The Splendid Deception about how FDR basically did this. And so he'd have these braces on and he'd lock them in place and he would hold on to somebody like his son or, 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 or a large uh, aide and he'd have a cane in the other hand. And by by moving his torso back and forth, he could appear to walk. He's just, he's just sliding one leg forward and then the other leg. There's no walking at all. But the braces give the impression that he could actually walk. So you hear some people say, well, he hid the fact that he had polio, didn't he? I said, well, no. He actually, everybody knew he had polio. He got polio in 1921. He had just run for vice president and lost. Um, and his 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 polio was covered by all the major newspapers of the day. I mean, he was big news. He was a former vice presidential candidate. Just, you know, he just lost the election like eight months before. But um, most people who got polio uh, 
fully recovered. The majority of people who got COVID fully recovered. Some would have some difficulty. Some would have partial lameness. Some could have permanent paralysis. Some would die. But the amount of people who had what FDR suffered was very rare. Uh, I mean, I know people who are a little older than I am who had my mother-in-law had polio in 1950, you know, four years before the vaccine yet. And she has weakened back muscles. Um, fellow I used to work with at church, our church custodian, he talks like that because it affected his vocal cords. That's where it affected him. I mean, it could affect any part of your body. But with FDR, it was classic paralysis. I mean, and, you know, when he first contracted polio, he actually, he had trouble actually lifting his arms. That passed, but it basically settled where he could not move his legs. So people thought that, um, uh, he hid polio, but everybody, actually, everybody knew he had polio. They just did not know to what extent. Sure. People assumed he was, he was somewhat lame. He was partially lame, but no, he couldn't walk at all. Now, you, you brought up Eleanor Roosevelt earlier. Can Yes. Is she, was she like the first real first lady? I mean, we know she gave her weekly speeches. Can you think of a yeah. first lady prior to Eleanor Roosevelt who had an impact on the citizens of the United States like Eleanor did? Or was she like the uh, real first? Not, first not, lady? not directly. No, the, the 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 two the first ladies that come to mind are Edith Wilson, who was Woodrow Wilson's second wife, and she's been called the first female president because of he was incapacitated by a stroke, and I think that's been overblown. I think she she was a gatekeeper, and she she conspired with Wilson's doctor, Doctor Terry Grayson, um, and they decided what they would bring the president to the president's attention. Now you know it's, it's interesting because. Um, you have an incapacitated president, like what happens? Well, you know, the, our Constitution is an amazing document because a lot of the Constitution doesn't tell you what to do. <laughs> it's, 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 it's very, the Constitution of the United States is very vague. To but tell they you do what have you provisions can do. That, yeah. Um, you know, there's a big question now about if President Trump, former President Trump, is if he's convicted as a felon, can he not run? No, no, he can still run for president. Uh, he can pardon himself. There are all sorts of things he can do because uh, of the whole electoral college. I mean, it's very, very vague. I mean, each state has its own requirements, which is really kind of, uh, for my way of thinking, it's really kind of strange for If you're having a presidential election, a, a federal election, um, then, you know, you think it would be more, it would be more um, standardized. But no, every state can, how they, you know, winner take all or 51% or whatever. So the Constitution is very vague that way. One of the things in the Constitution was that if a bill becomes before the president, he doesn't sign it, in 10 days it becomes law. It works. And that's what happened when Wilson was, was incapacitated. Uh, he, was, he was incapacitated for the, for the last 19 months of his administration. It was a huge period of time. But, you know, the country went on. It's kind of like that old joke about Calvin Coolidge when he was out on the presidential yacht. They were on the Potomac one summer afternoon, and he dozed off, as, as he often did. <laughs> So he wakes up and, every, you know, there are a group of people. And they're all staring at him. He says, what? Country still here? <laughs> yeah, the country was still there. Yep. Um, so Edith Wilson, yeah, but, you know, she was not somebody who, you know, people really knew. Um, probably our most um, accomplished first lady was probably Lou Henry Hoover. She was the first female graduate of Stanford University in 1895. She graduated with, with Herbert Hoover, and they were both from Iowa, though they didn't know each other when they were living in Iowa. And she was the first woman uh, in America to receive a degree in geology. She was a, she was a geologist, and I don't think we've ever had a, a first lady who, who did that. 
But, you know, she was very influential with, you know, the Girl Scouts. But she was not a public figure in the sense that she was, you know, Eleanor Rosa wasn't trying to be a role model so much as Eleanor Rosa was, uh, um, she felt a need to connect with, you know, with a lot of women and disenfranchised people in the United States. So she had her column, which is really amazing. She wrote that thing every day from 1935 until she died 1962. Just remarkable. Now, yesterday when we had our little Spirit of 45 event on board the late victory, um, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, delivered, actually in her column, My, My Day, she wrote that. And it was really quite an amazing uh, speech. And my, my wife recited, my wife, my wife came as Eleanor Roosevelt yesterday. She, uh, she's got the Eleanor Roosevelt eyes. And she recited the speech. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's funny, she turns to me afterwards. She says, you know, have I ever seen the new Barbie movie by any chance? No. I'm guessing no, but uh, <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> you know, it's about empowerment her speech could be right out of that barbie movie it's just, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's, i have seen it i i have not seen Oppenheimer yet but i've seen barbie no um, i got dragged down to the last voyage of the namir this weekend so <laughs> week it was all about <laughs> vampires but you know she talks about the fact that you know women are going to have to help men adjust to peacetime and you know the women and so forth but the fact that women have to work together for world peace type of thing just it was just a remarkable thing. She's just a remarkable, remarkable person. You know, it's just a. You know, my favorite quote really of her. Glad, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's what, the point I wanted to make earlier. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but I'm talking about Mrs. Tidwell here for a minute because yeah. you know very few reenactors uh, that I know of. I mean, I know you know my wife participates with me, but we don't have a specific. Uh, couple that we portray oh, yeah. as living historians. Yeah. She's got a few uh, uniforms, and I always kind of like to laugh. I, I do a lot of, you know, as you know, Robert, I do a lot of 8th Air Force stuff, so I like to think of her as, she's English uh, anyway, and I thought maybe uh, get her a waif uniform one day. She does a great English accent. Um, well, but she's got wife, a few American... Your wife is English? Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, that, I mean, um, she's, she's Texan first, but, <laughs> you know, she's well, mostly, all mostly Texans English. Are yeah, no, yeah, a lot of other reenactors don't always have that kind of support. No, or, I, um, I know, right. I know, like four. I think I know, well, one who's really involved, but other than that, I, uh, maybe two of the guys whose girlfriends show up and just put on a dress, but they don't actively, you know, participate. Yeah. So it is rare, right. but. But let's give it up for Mrs. Tidwell uh, to to portray uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and the things that she does, the pictures you sent that we're going to share with our listeners, you know, this week. I I, I wish I had put it. She's she's absolutely wonderful. And she's got the voice down. And uh, she's a gifted actress to begin with. She's actually trained as a a director. She actually went to she went to one of the major drama schools in London back in the mid 70s. It's called Weber Douglas, which it's not well known. It's not like the Royal Academy, but. People like Angela Lansbury went there, Stuart Granger, Donald Pleasant, uh, Julian Fellows, the guy who wrote Downton Abbey. I hate that guy because he's very trite, but <laughs> but he does know how to entertain. He's a Weber Douglas graduate. So she went there, but her real gift is, is directing. So when I do my MacArthur stuff or my FDR stuff, I'll run it past her and I say, uh, what do you think? And she says, well, you need to, you need to punch this part up. You need to emphasize this part over here. So you need somebody to get a sound off so she's very helpful that way but but there's no advice i can give her to do all she just nails it she just has that 
ability. And you know, it's acting is interesting because it's not just about sincerity. It's 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 technical. You've got to project. You've got to enunciate. There are you know, it's like <clears throat> it's like being a gifted artist. You know, it's like if you can't decide which colors to use or how to hold a paintbrush, you can't. You know, you can be have the most imagination in the world. But to be an effective actor, you really have to get the technical aspects down, you know, the clarity of voice, sincerity. It's, it's a lot of different things. Um, and, of course, she was training the British method, which is called, you know, technique. So, Our friend Tony over at WLVN 1940s Radio commented on our YouTube channel, interesting thing I've read about FDR, he was more scared of fire than assassination. He would often leave yes. his door unlocked in case of a fire and would practice rolling out of bed and crawling across the floor to get to the door. There are two reasons for that. There are two reasons that he had a cousin who uh, who uh, actually uh, died of burns. Uh, something happened. I think uh, the paraffin, paraffin this, was, this was when he was a child. This was, I think, when he was around uh, seven or eight years old. It was the 1880s. And I I'm not sure if he was in the same household at the time, but uh, the uh, the cousin had a paraffin lamp and it exploded, and again, it just it just set her whole front of her dress on fire. Uh, and then, of course, when he when he developed polio, he was helpless. I mean, he couldn't he couldn't walk, so he had two things going there. So yeah, he was absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, there's a very famous quote about that. You know, uh, um, the first night that they're in the White House, March fourth, nineteen thirty three. He's saying goodnight to Eleanor, and he's already been he's already been lifted in the bed and, and so forth. <clears throat> he said, all my life, I've been afraid of fire. But tonight, I'm afraid that I won't be able to do this job. And she said, no, everything's going to be fine. So, I mean, that's the only time you actually talked about that. But, but as far as you know, uh, so, um, not being able to be, uh, be an effective president. But, uh, yeah, no, that was constant. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but you know, fear of fire is not a, is not big on my list of fears. I'm more afraid of burglars. But uh, well, see, you know, I, for a lot of people. I grew up in a this, lot of people. Yeah, I grew up in the early '80s, and I was filled with an unreasonable fear of quicksand because it was on every TV show and every movie growing up. But I've yet to come across quicksand, so I guess I can just mark that fear off my list. Yeah. Yeah. I only learned recently it's just water. You just you just lie back and you can float on. You can float on. Yep, stop so why did I, why did, if I if I knew that when I was ten years old, I would have you know I would have probably slept better at night. But <clears throat> yeah, but you know, a fear of fire. I mean, that was a that was a huge common fear for people in the uh, you know in the in the in the nineteenth or twentieth century type of thing. It's uh, sure. I mean, when uh, when your light was oil lamps and candles. Oh yeah, yeah, candles. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Christmas trees with candles all over them. That's something amazing. Yeah, it's just oh. Boy, I hate to be the one whose responsibility was to water the Christmas tree that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, just a, um, you know, someone, uh, someone, uh, I came across a quote just on Facebook the other day. We're talking about FDR. Um, I'm on several different, you know, Facebook pages. And, and sometimes people can just write one sentence. Some woman had written, a crippled man taught the nation how to run. But yeah, you know, it's like uh, the story of Seabiscuit, the horse, you know, who had issues. And, um, it's like um, we have a um, – the nation is crippled, and we, we elect a crippled president to, to get us out of it. It's, it's just uh, – it's amazing. I mean, you can say what you like about FDR. You can call him a communist, a socialist. This is a courageous man. And, you know, he never – you know, with the exception of the first couple of years after he contracted polio in 1921, he, 
the takeoff in the summer, you go down on a houseboat down in Florida every summer for three, I think three years. And they went down there just basically to mourn, I think, just to mourn the loss of his legs. Um, but um, within a short period of time, he discovered Warm Springs, Georgia. And he, just, he was just always. And, you know, my favorite, we did this great thing. Speaking of uh, First Ladies, um, every February, I'm involved at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda. It's only about 40 miles from here. And we go out there and we, my wife and I perform as Franklin and Eleanor. And recently they've been adding this feature where it's the president and the first ladies. So these are not spouses, but people come out and, and you know, we have, we have, usually we have George Washington, we have General Grant, we have Gen, uh, President Lincoln and myself. And um, actually I take that back. President Lincoln's wife comes, she has, comes as Mary Todd Lincoln. So he's, he's a, you know, another one of those exceptions, I think. Um, but uh, Eleanor is interesting because we you know, will often stand by the front door when people come into the library and they'll look at me like I'm chopped liver and they go, it's Eleanor. <laughs> they are right. They go right to Eleanor. You know? <laughs> so this group of, so we were doing this on the, uh, on the 4th of July, we had a little embed at the Nixon library. And so uh, Eleanor had her table next to my table and uh, I had recreated his desk at the, at the Oval Office because he had all these knickknacks on it. Very interesting. Kids love dial telephones because they've never mm -hmm. seen one before. <clears throat> but uh, people would come in, this, this family came and they talked to me for about five minutes. They moved down to Eleanor's table and they're there for half an hour. You know, it's just. <laughs> well, once we again, in, in those environments, it's male dominant, you know, yeah. war history, yeah. politicians, yeah. it's men, men, yeah. men. And as we were talking, with the exception of a few, Eleanor was the first, you know, female kind of role model in that position. And, you know, she was always pushing the envelope. I mean, she is the definition of woke. Yeah. I mean, when, you think, when you think about it, because she was saying, you know, what about these people? You know, right after Pearl Harbor, or in February of 42, when Roosevelt signed his 9066 executive order to mm -hmm. incarcerate the Japanese, um, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, <clears throat> she wanted to move a Japanese family into the White House to sort of show her support. And she got talked out of it very quickly. But she was always doing things like that. You know, um, Marilyn Anderson, the um, the, the, the African American contralto who wanted to sing at the at the Constitution Hall, the DR, DAR, which ran said, "No, we we were, we were segregated." So they arranged for her to sing in the steps of the White House or the Lincoln Memorial. But um, uh, I was doing an event at Fort MacArthur in 2018. It was on the uh, it was uh, we had uh, Churchill and we had Stalin. This guy doing Stalin was wonderful, and so people are coming up and asking us. It was a, it was an anniversary of the Tehran Conference. In, in Iran, 1943. <clears throat> and um, someone came and asked me about the internment of the Japanese-American citizens. <laughs> you know, FDR never, ever, the only thing he ever said about it was that we cannot let anything interfere with war production on the West Coast. That's the only thing he ever said. He didn't justify it. And so I quoted that, and I said, um, and I think we have to realize that uh, you Californians, do not have a good track record no. with your relations with Asiatic, Asiatics. And that just stopped you right there. <laughs> because everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, Because you know the 1906 decision from the uh, San Francisco Board of Education, there were like six, six or 12 Japanese students who wanted to enroll in public school. And, and the school district said no. So they eventually built a separate classroom for them. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just yeah, and, and people look at it through the eyes of modern day, and I'm, I'm looking at my library, and I can't see the book, but I was reading a book, like The Sons of the Pacific or something, but it was about the yeah. 
the uh, second generation Japanese American citizens who went to fight, yeah. fight in the in the army. But what they're talking about, and what a lot of people don't realize, and which I didn't even realize until I read this book, is the civilian population on the islands of Hawaii. There were more first and yeah. second generation Japanese than there were Anglo's and or even indigenous Hawaiians. And, and I'm sure I'm sure they mentioned why they did not intern those people. Yeah, because they couldn't. They didn't have the room, and they didn't have the manpower to 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 uh, to uh, to process the uh, the pineapple. And and furthermore, in California, the Japanese population was rather large too. And so, when you're yeah. stressing out, you're dealing with the situation, as we've experienced multiple well, times since then. Too. There's people who make knee jerk reactions. I'm not defending it, but. Um, no, absolutely. The internment yeah, yeah. thing is kind of people are looking at it through 2023 eyes, not so much 1941, 42 eyes. People are people were terrorized. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the uh, <clears throat> the California Army commander guy whose name was John DeWitt, who was a classmate of MacArthur's, um, had really pushed pushed on this. And J. Edgar Hoover had talked to Roosevelt about this several times, saying there's absolutely no evidence that the Japanese Americans or their parents are disloyal. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not doing anything in Hawaii where we, where using your logic, we should, but we're not doing anything over there because it's not realistic. So why are we doing it here? Yeah. There's no indication that it should be done. I think part of it too was, I think there was a concern about war hysteria. And I think uh, and maybe, maybe, and I'm just, just conjecture on my part, maybe FDR was concerned about the fact that because how, how many troops do we want to use to, uh, to protect people against uh, vigilantism when they, they can be doing other things. So maybe, and I'm sure there was know. a lot of people in the good old boy network at that time interested in the land grab because we know not only were they interned but their property was stolen, and that yeah. in and of itself is disgusting. I mean, well, you know, they they didn't seize it, but they basically made it made it in such a way where they couldn't pay the mortgages and they went into foreclosure. Yeah. yeah. Now some people, there were some you know Anglo's who actually who were friends of Japanese Americans who actually made the payments. Kept, kept the property in that family. But that was very rare, you know, few and far between. But, yeah, there was no provision for that. I mean, the government could have put a moratorium on, or the government could have paid for it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll pay. We'll pay. You're given, what, 48 hours to vacate. I mean, can you imagine, the, you know, the Army coming up to your house and saying, well, you got 48 hours to, to leave because, you know, I mean, we, don't, we don't know when you're coming back. I mean, you just have to kind of put yourself in that position to think about what that was like. There was a very then prominent. You have, you have the, then you have the 442nd. Infantry, yep. the, the Nissan, you know, the highest proportion, highest casualty rate proportion, highest major decorations for, for bravery. Um, Daniel Inouye, the senator from, mm-hmm. from Hawaii. There is there was a very prominent rock band that came out in the late 90s or popular up until the lead singer passed away a few years ago called Lincoln Park. And the yes. keyboardist of that is uh, Japanese descent. And he had a side project called Fort Minor. And they put out a song called Kimji, and it was about his grandparents who went through the internment camp. And at the beginning of the song, you know, they're talking about them showing up and you having 20 minutes to shove whatever you can in a garbage bag. And it's it's not only is it interesting, but it's very cool historically to have, I say modern day, even though it's 20 years old now, but to have a modern day song given the viewpoint of what happened through the ancestors and the people who were there in a modern day musical format was very cool for the time. And it's, it's nice to see that that was put out there. Yeah, exactly. Before we um, go ahead. I'm trying to think of the actor who was in Star Trek who played a Japanese American actor. 
Oh, I'm, I, I'm, not a, I'm not. I'm not a Trekkie. My wife would know this all the time. Talking about the original Trek anyway, or the the uh, the modern. The, the, the original from the '60s. Yeah. Oh, oh. I can't. Think, uh, I can't think of the can't think of the actual name. It slipped my mind. I I could have told you any other day, but you put me on the spot. Um, he he was interned in in Arkansas, in the camp. So I think he was born in uh, 38 or 39. So as, as a very young child. He George Sakai. George Sakai. Thank you. Yeah. Arkansas. So they had had those camps as far east as Arkansas. Before we uh, move on real quick, before we wrap up the show, we always usually end with what you read. But I want to remind everybody, because it's been a while since we've really hit it, we want to hear from you. Please send us an email to mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. We want to hear what's going on in your lives, any suggestions, comments, questions, anything you have for the show. And as we did tonight, um, if you haven't done so, please go over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link. Sign up and subscribe. It'll cost you a dollar a month. It goes a long way to support the show. But um, Or you can support the show by simply going to YouTube. Go to YouTube, like, subscribe, watch some of our videos. You can participate and ask questions during the live stream like uh, Anthony did from WLVN 1940s Radio tonight. And there's, um, I didn't see it at the beginning, but when we first started the show, a uh, fan, Gabe, Gabe Riviera, came on and said he's currently stationed North Island of uh, Coronado, California. And so oh, you, guys, really? you guys can participate yeah. in the conversation that way. And um, so real quick, I, I'm on the same book, so I'm not going to get into it. But, Jeff, what you reading? Well, uh, I talked a little bit about it last week, and I finished it since then. And it is an absolute must-read. I've read a lot of books about the Second World War from all perspectives. I've read very little about uh, strictly from the Navy perspective. I'm just not a Navy guy. And I just had a hankering to just read a book that was from that perspective, right? Navy runs very deep uh, with my great-grandfather and my maternal grandfather. And I and I found I just never really read a book just strictly from the Naval perspective. This is the book the heart of hell by mitch weiss this is the book we have referenced many times on the podcast and i hope my clock is too much of a distraction back there i know no. it's gone <laughs> um but we uh we've referenced it many times with dennis on the show that it's dennis's research it's his hard work and it's his passion and it's his family uh, that made that book possible even though it was written by uh Pulitzer prize winning author mitch weiss but Guys, I was telling Don this a little bit before the show, and, and he said, "Man, hold, you know, wait, wait, wait till we go live." But there's a reason I don't read about today's war, right? I, I don't, I don't want to read about it. Uh, it's not that I don't care. I don't want to. <laughs> I had never thought so much about my time in Baghdad as I did reading *The Heart of Hell*. I didn't think that uh, a gunner on a Humvee would have so much in common with a sailor on an LCI gunboat uh, in the shadow of Mount Suribachi at Iwo Jima. And I'm not saying that comparing services in any way or comparing a uh, tour of duty in any way, but the things that I was subjected to uh, and that my battle buddies were subjected to was so much in common with what these guys had to do. And, you know, when, when, when you, ah, man, it's just, it's an emotional book. Um, read it. It's a must read. If you're not a Navy fan, even you're going to get so much out of it. 
because this was such a pivotal part of the Battle of Iwo Jima, and it happened two days before the Marines ever hit the beach. And it's sickening that it's so overlooked that what those gunboats did, the sacrifices that were made, the importance of the frogmen and the UDT teams that went in on those lanes uh, prior to. But this is the most human story that you're going to find in a book about the Second World War. You are going to see relationships um, born through letters. You're going to see love born through letters. You're going to read excerpts from these letters. Um, you're going to see families completely pulled apart. You're going to see young lives completely snuffed out and you fall in love with these men for the first 300 pages of this book. You can hear them laugh. You know what songs they like. You know what their girlfriend's names are. You know what their daughter's name is. You know the girl that they say that they're going to marry when they get home. And these guys don't get home. So many of them do not get home. Read The Heart of Hell, the untold story of courage and sacrifice in the shadow of Iwo Jima that would not be possible but without our friend Dennis Blocker and his grandfather's unbelievable sacrifice being one of the few that actually walked away from that uh, without any physical scars. Nobody walked away from LCI 449 without lasting scars, without emotional scars. Uh, and it's a service that we need to always have in our hearts and in our minds is moving forward of just what 71 men did on a small boat off the coast of Iwo Jima so long ago. Wow. Hey, Robert. Yes. What you reading? Uh, I am still reading the, uh, the, uh, um, here, let me grab it. The author's name here. Uh, my wife moved it. <clears throat> Book by a guy named Gallagher, who is a wrote it back in '83 or '84. He's a polio victim and he's a historian. And he's it's a book I re referenced a little while ago. It's called uh, FDR's Splendid Deception about how he hid the extent of his polio. And uh, it just gives you an incredible insight into somebody. I mean, you know, we go through um, um, all of us go through certain you know uh, physical ailments. I'm I'm almost seventy now, so. Um, but to lose the, you know, the, the, to use the use, of your, the use of your legs, and you know, bear in mind when FDR lost his uh, use of his legs in 1921, you, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, was 70 years away. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you know, nothing was was going to be easy for him. Plus, the fact he wanted disguise to how how bad. So this is a man who's very very courageous. He's just going to meet it head on, and he. And he comes up to it and, and just the generosity of him in the sense that <clears throat> after five years of, of dealing with polio and coming to grips with it, he comes across this broken down sanitarium in, in western Georgia called Warm Springs. And FDR is worth about $60 million. So he spends about a million dollars and with some friends and they actually buy this place and they rehabilitate it and they open it up free of charge to people who've had polio or spinal injuries and they, they hire doctors they start working on new therapies um uh, there's what they call the warm springs crutch which is still being used which was developed by by that that that, that hospital um and then as they realize that they just over several years they created this foundation but it's not doing enough they need to raise more money particularly to find a cure for polio 
he creates the March of Dimes. And he wow. puts his name on the line. He says, I want people to send their dimes to me in the White House. And it's a private foundation. There's no government money involved. And he's just inundated hmm. by, by people. Um, the first year they raise um, uh, <clears throat> over $2.6 million. Now, this is 1938. That's mm-hmm. like $60 million nowadays. And it's just a lot of children sending money into it. And it takes 17 years, and he doesn't live to see it, but eventually uh, a, a vaccine, two different vaccines are, are developed to eradicate polio completely. And he did this just because it was the right thing. To, it was a very decent person. It's the right thing to do. He'd been a victim, and um, he didn't want other people to go through that. So it's it's one of those little sort of measures of people's, I mean, it's, it's something that he didn't have to do. Um, but but he did. He wanted to. He wanted to help others. So a certain generosity of spirit type of thing, and it's just remarkable leadership too. I mean, here's a man who you know he's he's fought the Great Depression. He's commander in chief during the Second World War. I mean, that's not enough. He's got to do something else. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't fault those Roosevelts on a lack of energy. They're just constantly they're constantly going at it. Um, so yeah, I'm still reading that. It's just. A, but he talks about the day to day preparations i mean i mean not to be gross but think about this you know you get dressed you've got this 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 steel cage underneath your clothes and you've got to go to the bathroom all of a sudden just like that what do you do i mean it's like those are the day-to-day things you need to worry about just to give you an example not to gross you guys out uh, i had bowel surgery a few months ago and i've had to wear a temporary ostomy bag which i'm doing let's say eight months now believe me the novelty is beginning to wear off it comes off in about three weeks <laughs> so they hook me back up Sure. But, you know, just having having to wear this thing for the last eight months. And, you know, um, I was at, an, you know, and it, 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 it protrudes. So I had to have my uniform recut by my tailor last week to hide the bulge in the front, you know. So we had, and this guy's really creative. So, I mean, and that's just a minor thing. It's temporary. I get it, you know, another three weeks, they, they hook me back up. This goes away. Um, but it's been an inconvenience, but it's, it's, it's a minor. I mean, imagine not having the use of your legs yeah. for the rest of your life. But, you know, the thing about Roosevelt was that he was convinced and he was in denial. I mean, he really thought that if he lived long enough, they would find a cure for polio and that he could be cured. And of course, you can't cure polio once you get it. You can you can vaccinate for it. You can prevent it, but you can't cure it. Well, even if they but found a quote unquote cure, you can't reverse the lack of years of using your leg muscles. No, no, you know, the, the, uh, the, the nerves that have died because of that type of thing. But just that that ability to, you know, to, to push on and continue and to try to help others. And it's just it's just my your, your, your respect for somebody. Like it's, it's just very, very moving that. Uh, that uh, and of course, you know, like a lot of people, you know, he had his he had his faults. He had flaws. I mean, my goodness. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, he, he was very, very human that way, but you know, what a really decent person and what a courageous person I think is, is my kind of takeaway on that. You know, they often say, we I, don't appreciate- way, this, is, this is a book I've known about for 35 years. And I just got around reading it last, uh, <laughs> last couple of weeks. <laughs> well, I'm going to wrap so up gonna- the show with this quote, and that is, uh, we never appreciate our health until we're sick. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, for myself, Jeff Copsetta and Mr. Robert Tidwell. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, sir. Um, well, Jeff's just been trying to get me on for a year now, and we just haven't been able to. Uh, I was I was doing Harvey to play Harvey a, a year ago, and uh, and I said ah, I just can't make that one. And then things got 
sidetracked. But uh, thank you. I'm really, I'm really delighted. And uh, and very very honored to be on your program. I've heard very nice things about it. So well, I appreciate your time. And uh, for everybody here, we will talk to everyone next week. This has yep, been yep. a Digital Four Ten production. <laughs>